You're listening to The Happiness Hub, part of the Redshift Community Podcast Network with me, Liz Parkin. And me, Kedron Elliott. Every episode, we'll share top tips on how to get happy and stay happy. So listen in, get involved and be happy. Hello, Happiness Hub listeners. I'm recording today's episode on my own because my co-presenter Liz couldn't make it today. So, got a bit to tell you before we get started and introduce our guest. I just wanted to tell you a little bit about our Happiness Appy, um, which will be launched next month. So, Liz, myself, previous podcast guest Ben Stubbs have put together a six weeks wellness program that anyone in the CW5 area can sign up for. The program will deliver you and take you through six weeks of top tips, hints and resources to help you improve your mental health with weekly Zoom sessions, links to our podcast on the weekly wellness themes and interactive chats and daily prompts. If you wanted to take part, it is free to uh, sign up However, we are asking all our participants to pay £25, which will be refunded to you if you complete at least five of the wellness weeks. Um, If you don't finish the course, then we'll be donating the money to one of the mental health charities that we've had on this series of the podcast. So we'll put everybody's names into a pot and we will pick one out at random. And for anyone who doesn't complete the wellness programme, their money will be going towards that charity. So the sign-up form's going to be live on our Happiness Hub Facebook group next week. And once we've filled all the slots, we've got about 15 to 20 people that we can onboard with the programme. We'll be starting the course. So we're hoping to do that, launch that on the 11th of April after you've had all your Easter egg treats and everybody's raring to go. So this will be the last episode of Series 2 where we've been interviewing mental health charities and next series is going to link into the happy happy that we're launching so we'll be covering things such as gratitude uh, self-care five ways to wellness uh, that kind of thing will be incorporated in there how to create new habits and also how to let go of things that will be our last week so it's all going to kind of tie in so hope you are going to find that really useful and interesting. The podcast will be independent, so if even if you're not signed up for the Happy Appy, you will get lots of top tips about um, those kind of topics and little things that you can do for your well-being. So that leads me on to introducing this week's guest called Saskia, and she is the CEO of Cheshire Without Abuse. It's a local domestic abuse charity in Cheshire, which has been operating since 1977. And they deliver a whole family service as they support both adult and child victims of domestic abuse and adult and young perpetrators of domestic abuse. And they offer refuge, accommodation, emotional well-being support, recovery programmes, specialist training and resources for professionals. And they also have a website called Monkey Bob, which is a resource resources for younger children and behaviour change interventions for adults and young people. It was really interesting talking to Saskia and learning about the fact that this pandemic has created more than double of demand for their services. So it's been a really busy time for them. So thank you so much to Saskia for coming on and talking to us. Um, she's worked in this field for over half of a lifetime. And Saskia talked about her lived experience 
having spent over a year in refuge in the early 1990s with her children as well. Um, she also talked about her invisible disabilities, which a lot of people live with. Um, she said she has dyslexia, and for over 25 years, she's also been diagnosed as being bipolar. Saskia talks about these as being her superpowers, which I really love the way that she's reframed those challenges that she's faced and created them into something positive. Of course, Saskia also told us a little bit about what her makes her happy and some of her top tips. So I really hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I did recording it and talking to Saskia. And so without further ado, let's go to the interview. Okay, so it's time to introduce our guest today. This is the last episode of our second series on mental health charities. And we've been joined today in our virtual Zoom studio by Saskia Lightburn Ritchie. So hi Saskia, how are you? Hi, I am very well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me today. I've listened to the podcast and I'm really glad to be part of it. Fantastic. I'm glad you've had a, a chance to listen to our few podcasts and we've been we've been wanting to get someone from um, your organisation on the, the podcast for a little while because we're really keen on supporting local charities. And something that you might not be aware of is we're launching a wellness programme soon. I think on the 11th of April is our launch date and it's going to be a wellness programme all kind of done from, a, from an app and we're asking people to make a donation. And if they by any chance can't complete the whole weeks, we're going to pick a charity that we've interviewed in our last series out the hat and the money's going to go to you. Oh, amazing. That's fantastic. (laughs) So hopefully you never know. You've got to be in it to win it, as they say. Yeah, Um, you'll have to let us know the details as well, because we can put it on our um, Facebook page. Oh, that would be fantastic. So before we talk a little bit about your organisation, Saskia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to work for Cheshire Without Abuse? That's who you're here to talk about us today. Yeah, well, I've been the chief exec of Cheshire Without Abuse literally just over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I started on the 1st of March 2000 and 11 so it's been a decade in that role Uh, but I've worked in domestic abuse for pretty much the whole of my uh, adult career so well over half my lifetime now. I lived in refuge following my first marriage which was a very abusive relationship and I moved into refuge with my two sons uh, in the early 1990s and it was a terrifying experience it mm. was I can't even say it was all a positive experience it wasn't it was very difficult very challenging but there were women who were working at that refuge who just really changed my life they my life was transformed by the experience um, in in ways I can't even begin to describe but um even after we were settled in a new home in a new area, the uh, staff at the refuge would invite us if they were going on days out and they let me do my laundry there because I didn't have a, a washing machine at the time. And um, I ended up volunteering at that refuge and then joining their board of trustees and later starting work as a support worker and then I've worked at a number of different domestic abuse organisations mm-hmm. over the years. And I guess for me, like for many people who've had challenging experiences, you you kind of want to give back. You want to be able to help the people who are having similar experiences to you. And I've 
suffered from mental illness i have bipolar disorder so i've had those additional challenges throughout my adult life i also have a range of kind of disabilities i have ulcerative colitis and diabetes and a, a couple of other disorders that make life a little bit more difficult than usual and I'm dyslexic as well so I feel sometimes like I've got a hat full but actually now I'm, I'm just about to turn 50 and I feel as though those things really are my superpowers. I have learned so much from having to cope with the challenges that have gone on in, in my life and I've had to develop skills and resilience and also you know a level of empathy I think for the people that really makes a difference in the work that we do and I like to think that we're really special as an organisation because of that because so many of our staff and volunteers have got lived experience and bring that to the table and I think the worst things that happen to you in life are the things that later can become your superpowers and really make you who you are and make you be able to help other people in a way that maybe is why it was all necessary in the first place. I don't know, but uh, that's kind of my philosophy on it anyway. I, I love the way that you you say you call them your superpowers because when you when I was emailing you, you, you put that in one of your emails and I was like, what a... A great way of reframing the challenges that you've had to be able to use it in a positive way and we have found while we've been interviewing people who have set up organizations like yourself or other mental health charities that they've done it out of their lived experiences and you're absolutely right having the opportunity to speak to somebody who has experience of oh, known what you've got, gone through can be really a, a very powerful experience for somebody so you said you've been at Cheshire Without Abuse for 10 years now, isn't it? Yes, 10 years. Yeah. Um, it's Cheshire Without Abuse has been around since 1977. Mm. Um, it started out as a, a woman called Lily Jones actually started it in 77. She had been in an abusive relationship and once her life was more settled, she was determined that she would help other people who were in that situation. And at the time, it was very, very new. There weren't these organisations. The first um, refuge had only been set up two years earlier in uh, in London by Erin Pitsy. And so, it, it, you know, it was a big thing to do. Um, and initially, it was Lily and her friends putting women and children up in their spare bedrooms, on the sofa, you know, making a camp bed on the floor, moving them around the country um, to safety and away from the violence and abuse that they'd experienced. It was very informal and it really made a difference. And Lily actually worked with the organisation until she passed away in the early noughties. But over the years, the organisation became registered charity. They raised money and they bought their first refuge. Um, by the time I was joining in 2010, there was a staff team of about eight and they had 12 refuge spaces um, and did a little bit of work in the community, but it was quite, quite small. And it has grown massively over the past 10 years. We we have um, between 50 and 100 volunteers at any time. Um, and we have a staff team of just over 30. So th there's a lot going on now that didn't happen then. We've, we've um, really listened to what 
survivors have told us they've needed and then we've tried to develop a response to those needs and that has transformed the way we work completely so although we are still a, a feminist organization who really does want to tackle the gendered nature of domestic abuse we work with everybody who's impacted by mm -hmm. domestic abuse so we work with male victims we work with um, female perpetrators uh, as well as male perpetrators we work with the children we work with children who are abusive to their parents and work with the whole family um, and that's really where our whole family approach has come from it's come from recognizing that if you only deal with the person that's affected by the abuse you don't necessarily make enough change yeah. um, because usually what happens is that the perpetrator will move on to, to another victim mm -hmm. and often sadly victims who don't get the right support will go on to have another abusive relationship and the impact on children is just incredibly worrying it's a, a one of the worst adverse childhood experiences that that can happen in a child's life so without the right intervention that can go on to affect their adult relationships so it's really important that the service is there and that it's it's right and it's good enough to to make the difference that it needs to yeah and listening to what your clients need as well I mean you think about thinking back in the 70s about there not being very much support it always amazes me um, when you talk to people about the research into mental health or the services and just within our lifetime they've practically being non-existent we had a, a lady on from um, a charity called mental health research uk and she was talking about when she was young and starting to do research and how there was very little research in mental health and they're still campaigning to get more done particularly around children's mental health seems to be quite a big thing that they're looking at at the moment great to hear that it's not just because i think maybe some people might presume that cheshire without abuse is just for women but to hear that you're supporting not only, you know, the whole family and, and men, but also working with the perpetrators. How does that work? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I have to say when survivors started to tell us that they thought we should do the work with perpetrators, which was in 2011, 2012 was when we started. I, I found that very challenging personally. Um, I, I, I'd worked with victims all my all my adult working life and I think the, the organization had traditionally been a women's organization and, and we felt that working with male victims was absolutely the right thing to do and um, working with perpetrators that that was harder but what women were telling us is that the abuse got worse when the relationship ended not better in in many cases and we know from research that the risk increases during when just after a relationship ends mm -hmm. that's when the, there's the most significant risk um, and also what women were telling us was that you know if they've got children with their ex-partner and they've got to co-parent that is incredibly difficult without some support around how to make that work mm -hmm. safely and how to make that work well so uh, we actually uh, we work with a psychologist called Emily Allison um, and she's got so much experience she's an American psychologist she uh, lives in the UK but she works with the FBI in, in America 
on non-violent interview techniques. She works with a number of police forces in the UK and she's written our programmes um, and she trains our staff and uh, does all of the clinical supervision for our staff. So we know we're getting it right. Mm. Um, so we've done the perpetrator programmes, like I say, since 2012. Um, and they are long, that is a long piece of work. It's nine months minimum to see sustainable change that's what all the research tells us it's it's complex work it's therapeutic so it's cognitive behavioral therapy based and dialectical behavioral therapy based uh, so all of our facilitators who do this work they have to be trained in all the different therapeutic approaches they have to be trained to deliver the program then we have to be trained to make sure that we are not encouraging or supporting manipulative behaviour from perpetrators. And I think what people probably don't always realise is the level of mental ill health that there is around domestic abuse. So obviously for victims and children, it's quite traumatic. So it's a traumatic experience and then the impacts of that trauma affects people's mental health but very often the perpetrators also have got some background trauma or some mm -hmm. trauma from childhood and that absolutely is never an excuse for harming another person but it is a factor that has to be taken into consideration when you are working with people to change their behavior you you can't do that effectively without acknowledging what's going on underneath all of that um, and without trying to tackle some of those issues so it, it, it is probably a lot more complex than people think when they think about a service like ours I would say that certainly over 85 percent of our client group has mental ill health from suffering from depression and anxiety and the results of trauma so PTSD and complex PTSD right through to people who've got borderline personality disorder diagnoses based on the trauma they've experienced um, and we are obviously needing to treat people as a whole person I don't think I've ever met anybody that's come knocking on our door or ringing our helpline saying, you know, I've got issues with domestic abuse, but everything else in my life is perfect. Yeah. I mean, that that just doesn't happen. So what we do see is people coming who are confused and frustrated, who don't know if they're depressed or if they're it's based on their experiences mm -hmm. and if they've been to a GP they've often been offered antidepressants but with no solutions to the problems that mm -hmm. are facing them yeah. and I think like any anybody that you will have spoken to over the two series that you've done we're looking at complex human beings in complex situations and that work is it's really highly skilled work and it's really important that we are tackling all the different elements that are causing the problem removing somebody from the situation on its own is just not not adequate no I mean I have no doubt about the, the the task that you have in front of you but I hadn't considered that you would work with perpetrators as well what's the sort of success rate do you have any kind of stats around that sort of thing so there's very little research um, internationally into uh, the effectiveness of perpetrator programs. There was a big study done in 2018 uh, called the Mirabelle Report that showed that there are 
it is possible to make changes mm -hmm. uh, and make longer term sustainable changes. The difficulty with with results, if I'm being brutally honest, is that you know we know for our program that there's an there's a, an 85 percent reduction in police reported incidents but we also know that not every incident is reported to the police so so you can't we can't wave that from the rooftop saying look how great we've done because we can't have 100% confidence in that um, and 100% of the um, victims who were supported alongside a perpetrator doing that their work tell us that they're safer and again if they're wanting to remain in that relationship we still can't have 100% confidence in that because mm -hmm. they wouldn't necessarily tell us if they didn't feel safer because they might be concerned that we would try to interfere in the relationship. What we do know from doing this now for, for a, a good eight plus years is that where we've worked with families and we go back to them two, three and five years later, they have managed to sustain their family relationships and all the family members, including the children, report that family relationships are better. So I think it's it's a, it's a simple question, but and I know that's an overly complicated answer. I'm sorry. It's just really, it, it is really difficult. And I think unless you, we go out and see people three years down the line when they've had time to put this into practice and really make a change you can't be confident uh, because sitting on a program for nine months doesn't mean that change has taken place so we're always looking for the the evidence that real change has happened rather than people telling us that change has happened um i didn't expect a uh, a short answer to that question <laughs> but um you know just from the things that you covered there that you have made improvements but i, I guess like you say it's complex we are complex human beings never mind being in a complex situation um, one of the things I really wanted to ask you about is obviously how COVID has impacted your services. And, and I'd imagine that you have more people coming to you at this time for help. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we could have foreseen this time last year what this pandemic would bring us. I think mm. for a start, most people felt the first lockdown would be it and we'd be mm. getting back to normal. Um, certainly in April last year our referrals went through the roof and we have a 24-hour helpline and we have had to uh, put three extra staff on that helpline for the whole of the year to, to manage the extra calls that, that are coming in. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the number of people we're working with pre-COVID we probably carried a caseload of about 200 adults and children at any given time and that has doubled so mm. and, and at points um towards the end of last year in January that was coming up to the 500 mark rather than the 400 mark it's just mm. over 400 at, at the moment so the demand is massive absolutely massive um but more frightening even than those numbers is the fact that the cases that are assessed as high risk of death or serious harm have hugely increased by about 40 percent um so that is extremely worrying and we we have had in fact we have had two suicides and uh, murder in this period of time we've actually not lost any clients to covid um but we have lost those three clients mm. 
because of the pressures that people are under and the suicidal ideation of our client group is it's just gone through oh, the roof we're just doing a, a retrospective analysis at the moment because it is so severe I've, n- I've literally never ever known it like this I've, I've thought in the past that we've been busy I've thought in the past that I've been busy and that, that, that the workload is too much but it has been not just huge but quite traumatic for our staff mm. because they're all key workers working under COVID conditions with their own families and the same situations that everybody else is dealing with and yet then on top of that they've got clients who are attempting to die by suicide on a relatively regular basis and no matter how much we can tell each other that there's nothing more we could have done and that we've done everything we can I think people still feel a great sense of responsibility Um, and so the well-being of our staff has become as big a priority for me as the well-being of our clients as a result of this situation with the pandemic Mm -hmm. and although staff welfare is always a priority I think we've had to really step up how we support our our team to cope with the level of demand that we're seeing and the level of risk and the level of just desperation of the families that we're working with it's it's heartbreaking yeah I mean you're talking about families that are now trapped in their houses and where you know even going you know going to work or being able to get out is just some sort of relief and and people are not being able to do that and talking about support for your staff and things but is there any support that our listeners would be able to give to Cheshire Without Abuse at the moment? Have you got any fundraising? Are you looking for volunteers? Anything that you want to ask our listeners um, to help We've with? got a fundraising activity on our website, which is an Easter balloon race. We're trying to raise £1,000, which is uh, very specifically for mental um, health, self-help resources that we, we're wanting to buy. So if anybody can support us with that, that would be fantastic. Um, obviously, financial donations are always welcome. But as the doors reopen from the 12th of April onwards, we are really hoping to um, increase the number of volunteers that we have um, who who will are trained we train them and they get a qualification in peer mentoring and, uh, sorry the dog. you did say that your dog might bark the dog having his little his little say so uh, he doesn't he like it to be just me um, but yeah we're, we're really really looking for um, volunteers because those volunteers will support the delivery of services and can support people because courts have been closed for a period of time so our, our mentors and our Mackenzie friend volunteers are going to be absolutely crucial um, as the lockdown ends they just <laughs> really want to participate don't they but you know the um the thing that I have to say, I mean, you might need to put this somewhere else or, or change it. The thing that I've loved about the pandemic is seeing people's real lives. Mm. Talk, I, I had a meeting with the police and crime commissioner and his daughter kept running in and out. And, you know, it was so professional. He had banners behind him with, with police and crime commissioner and on it. And, um, and still his, his beautiful little girl was running in and out. And it was just... 
really lovely to see him as a dad as well as as the police and crime commissioner and there's no you know it's the end of the day now my family are coming in from where the animals are being set off but it's real and I think there's something about that realness that that we've maybe seen of each other that is probably healthier than the professional fronts that often we we put on to try to I definitely agree with that I've heard other people say that you know, you get a bit of an insight into somebody's ha house yeah. uh, if they haven't got a virtual background on because I'm in my spare room, which is the tip here. But you do, you do get a, a, to see the other side of people, don't you? And I think, I think that's really nice. I think that's really, really nice. Um, but yes, sorry to get back to the point before we that's were fine. so so rudely interrupted. <laughs> my family and my animals. The volunteers are going to be critical to us because courts have been closed for domestic abuse cases during the pandemic. They'll be reopening um, from the end of April and beginning of May, and then we'll have a 12-month plus backlog to get through. So Mackenzie friends who support our um, clients through the court process are going to be critical. Um, and also we believe that we'll see a, a surge, another surge in people who have been trapped and haven't been able to seek support until the lockdown is lifted. Um, so we'll need our, our um, volunteer mentors to, to support us with some of that work. So more than money, really, um, although I'll probably get shot for saying that by <laughs> some of the rest of the team, is is that very practical help of could you come and do the training and give some time to be on the rotor to to offer some of that quite specialist support all the training is is done for you um but it's it's really important to us you mentioned earlier about a lot of your volunteers having lived experience of um abuse themselves if somebody wanted to volunteer with you did would they have to have that experience no absolutely not we have um a whole range of volunteers we have people who are at university studying to do things that are linked so maybe abuse studies or psychology and they volunteer with us to do their volunteer hours as part of the degrees we have people who are retired who offer particular support with our our support groups and with mentoring um, and being a Mackenzie friend it really doesn't matter whether you've got lived experience or not and I think that's the key point is that we welcome people with lived experience so we're not going to say oh no you've you've just used our service you can't be a volunteer mm. we'll, we'll welcome those volunteers but we equally welcome those with other skills to bring um from the community and it's really as broad as possible and we would like to see more more men volunteer absolutely um, and especially to support with our um, male victims and on our male perpetrator program because having really positive male role models is a critical part of that work you mentioned Mackenzie friends there so if our listeners was listening what what does that entail oh, just that sorry yes that is a bit of jargon um, a Mackenzie friend is somebody who is legally permitted to uh, support somebody through their court process okay. so they don't have to be a solicitor they don't have to have any specific training although we do do an accredited Mackenzie friend training program it's a particular phrase because it's from a case where the defendant was called Mackenzie 
and they didn't have any legal support so they were permitted to take a family member into the court with them and there's some very strict guidance of what Mackenzie Friends can and can't do and what we hope to use Mackenzie Friends for and what our Mackenzie Friends currently do is they'll um, perhaps help somebody go through the paperwork they need to go through. They don't offer legal advice, but they offer support to complete paperwork um, and they can go to court with them and they can actually be in the courtroom with them. Mm -hmm. So if they are a litigant in person, which means they've got no solicitor, then the Mackenzie friend is their kind of their backup, really, their bit of emotional support, because it's a very a very I mean it's intimidating in the court for professionals so if there's something that you've got to go through the court process for both family court and criminal court can be devastating to somebody that's perhaps lost their confidence or doesn't understand the process and our Mackenzie friends are invaluable for that Mm. they um, can sit in the waiting area with them they can talk through the case with them um, and they get the Mackenzie friends get the support of our specialist workers and it just makes such a massive difference yeah I mean I think court proceedings and all legal things is confusing at the best of times never mind at the worst of times so having that support is it's crucial for some people I'd imagine it's, um, it's really important yeah and we we rely on volunteers to be Mackenzie friends for, for all of our clients that need it. That's a different way to get involved. And it's exactly the cat's agreeing with you as well. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we've talked a lot about what your, your service offers. So if somebody was struggling and they needed your help and support, how would they go about it? Where, where can they find you? So we have a 24 hour helpline um, and it's on a crew number 01270. 250390 mm-hmm. you can get that number from our website which i believe you're going to put in the links yeah uh, the links in the page um you can go on our website and access self-help information if you don't want specific support but through that um 24-hour number you can self-refer into the service to get support you can book a clinic appointment you can just have a chat to somebody to see what your options are and there's some self-help materials for perpetrators on that website as well Mm -hmm. and then um we do have two websites one for uh, children under seven which is um monkey bob .org.uk um, and we do have another one but I'm not going to name it because it's offline at the moment just okay. being revamped that's for older children and young people mm-hmm. um, but Monkey Bob is a sock monkey character that we have a lot of resources around for, for much younger children to help them understand um situations they might be in and to help them know how to keep themselves safe uh, and on our on our website as well there's um quite a few films you know that you can watch so we've got one of our very brave perpetrators talking about his experiences um, and quite a lot of our uh, victims who do creative things to to kind of raise awareness Mm -hmm. so i think there's there's lots of different options available and do you offer your services to is it cheshire wide the whole of us every single part of our service is available in cheshire east but in the other three local authorities they that there's a different mix of of providers so we only have refuge in cheshire east there are different refuge providers in the other three areas but our advice clinic peer support 
groups, mental health support groups, they're available in Warrington, Cheshire East and Cheshire Western Chester. So wherever you are in those areas, you can access those parts of the service. Okay, fantastic. So thank you very much for joining us today. You've done a very thorough job, I'd say, of explaining everything that you do. It's an amazing job that you guys do and so many volunteers. And I didn't realise quite how many people you've reached, especially during this kind of um, this lockdown when your services are going to be even more needed. It will be well over 2,000 by the end of this month. Um, So families and people, isn't it, you're helping? What we also like to do, Saskia, before we let our guests go, is to ask you a little bit about what your top tips are for mental health, because you've shared some of your own experiences and thank you for doing that as well. And also things that make you happy, because it is the happiness hub. Yeah, things that make me happy. My family mostly make me happy and and our animals. Yes, Um, (laughs) we've been introduced to today. Yes, they've made sure they've joined in. In particular, my grandchildren. I have got uh, 17 grandchildren Lord. Um, the, the oldest is just about to turn 16 um, and the youngest is just seven months old so they just make life sing even mm-hmm. a bad day is is a good day when you can have a FaceTime with one of your grandchildren um, but I like to try to take a bit of happiness out of the simple things um, and really try to have a mindful approach to everyday life so I was just talking to my daughter about this the other day and saying you know I had a pear a pear that uh, to eat that day it was very very ripe and juicy it was absolutely delicious and I just thought this pear is making me really happy you know and sitting in the garden when it's a sunny day by myself or with the family I think being able to take small moments of joy out of your day is really important because I think it's a cumulative thing. You know, you don't have to be in big joy all the time. And sometimes if you've got mental health issues, that's really hard. So to Mm -hmm. find the small joys would be my biggest tip. But being mindful, we teach all of our service users uh, mindful techniques and um, calm breathing techniques from the youngest to to the oldest the victims the perpetrators we all do mindful breathing at the start of every session I think if people did one thing practicing mindful breathing for a minute a day gives you a skill that in a moment of crisis or a moment of heartbreak can really be the difference between being able to cope with your emotions and not not being able to cope with them so for me they're they're biggies and there's absolutely clear advice and guidance on our website free worksheets to download on calm breathing and you know how how you can practice that with your children as well because it's Mm -hmm. great that's uh, brilliant. I mean, one of the reasons that Liz and I set up this uh, podcast was getting people to know that there's little things that you can do. Doing things with mental health doesn't have to be complicated, but it's little things like, you know, that little bit of mindfulness or breathing techniques and things. And woman after my own heart, food makes me happy. So you're <laughs> talking about enjoying your food, that's, that's top of my uh, my list. If I well. wasn't diabetic, it'd probably be chocolate, but a pair's yeah. the closest <laughs> I can get. <laughs> So thank you ever so much for uh, coming on today. It's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Was there anything that we've missed that we you wanted to include? I don't think so. No, I've pretty much told you <laughs> everything and given some probably quite complex 
comprehensive answers. Um, no, hopefully no, people no. weren't hoping for simple ones because it's it's not a simple problem. Um, but no, it's been really fun and I've enjoyed it. Thank you very Good. much. So thank you ever so much. And I will be in touch about our wellness app that we're coming up with. And if you can help share it with your, your clients and things yeah, as well. Definitely. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Happiness Hub, part of the Redshift Community Podcast Network with me, Liz Parkin. And me, Kedron Elliott. Every episode, we'll share top tips on how to get happy and stay happy. So listen in, get involved and be happy.